Good morning. It's great to be back. Well, I heard a funny story that was um, from yesteryear, back when the telegraph was sort of the main way that people communicated long distances. There was an opening for a telegraph position, and quite a few applicants showed up one day. And um, they, you know, telegraphs and Morse code and all that is, you've got to really have an ear for it. It takes a special skill to be able to to do this well and quickly. And so there were several, you know, all lined up waiting to be called back. The, they, they walk in and this, this young man walks into this noisy office. He sees the other applicants sitting there and the office is just a buzz with people talking. There's a telegraph thing, you know, chatting away in the distance. There's the secretary sitting there at the desk with a sign on her desk that basically says, fill out this form and then sit with the rest of the applicants and wait until you're summoned. So the guy did so. He sits down, fills out the form, and begins to wait. I mean, just a couple of minutes go by, and he immediately stands up, walks in front of all the other applicants, and walks straight into the office. A couple more minutes come by, and the boss comes out with this applicant and says, thanks for coming to the rest of the applicants. Thanks for coming. This man has the job. And they're saying, what in the world? We didn't even get to interview why does he have the job? And they said, well, the, the boss said, well, you may not have noticed, but when you sat down, the telegraph was typing out, if you can understand this, come on in, you've got the job. <laughs> and this was the only guy that had his ear attuned to, the, to why they were actually there. I heard that story years ago, and I thought about how true that is for us when we come to church. Because everybody hears the same thing. Some hear one thing, some hear another. But unless we're listening for the particular reason that we're there, we can end up walking out without a successful visit. Jesus told a parable one time that ended this way. He said, Therefore take care how you listen. For whoever has... To him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Take care, Jesus says, how you listen. Because the way you listen, if you listen one way, it's going to make a difference. If you listen another way, it's going to make a completely different difference. Jesus said on another occasion, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's why God gave us ears. It's not just to hear, but to listen. There's nothing easier than hearing. There's nothing harder than listening. Just ask any husband here in the room. <laughs> listening is easy. Hearing is easy. Listening. That's the challenge. The same is true in church, though, isn't it? It's not just true in relationships. We come to church, and it's really easy to listen, uh, to hear, to sit there and to to hear, you know, the, the pastor re read from the Scripture or to preach from the Scripture or to give principle number one, number two, and number three, let's pray, go home, and eat. But have we listened? And if we do want to listen, how do we do it? I've listened to thousands of sermons in my life, and you probably have too, literally thousands. 
And some of them you want to forget, but others you really want to remember. How do you hear a sermon in a way that will make an impact in your life? Because chances are you're still going to hear quite a few. How, how, can, how can we do it and it make a difference? Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We're in a series that we're taking our time with as we work through a single message from each book of the Bible. And we are right in the middle of the poetical section. Last time we were together and looking at this series, we were in Proverbs, which by and large was written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, almost certainly, and probably at the end of Solomon's life. It's sort of a reflection, a memoir of looking back on all that he's experienced and sort of some summing up what he learned, because we don't see it necessarily in Ecclesiastes, though as we read through the book you see bits and pieces of Solomon's life. When we look at Solomon's life in the books of uh, First Kings, and the book of First Kings, we really see Solomon started well, but then, I mean, he took, he took a left turn that went off into outer space. And if we just look at the historical books, we never see Solomon coming back around. But when we include the whole counsel of the Word of God, including Ecclesiastes, we realize, wait a minute, Solomon reflected on his life that went, went left, and he reflected in such a way that I believe he came back around at the end of his life, as we'll see here in Ecclesiastes. One church member said, the trouble is that God is like the pastor. We don't see him during the week, and we don't understand him on Sunday. I like that because that's how we often feel when we come to the Word of God and when we come to church. Um, probably most folks here, I know probably most men here, just because we like these kind of movies, have seen Jaws many times. Now, don't raise your hand because I know probably in church you would never really admit to seeing a movie about a great white shark that that changed everybody's life, made everybody afraid to go in the water. Remember, when I saw it, I was a boy. I was afraid to get in the bathtub. <laughs> I kid you not. I was, <laughs> it scared me to death. Oh, it was funny. I remember the first time our daughters watched Jaws, and, of course, I had the thing memorized almost word for word, and I knew when the jump scenes were going to be. And so instead of watching the TV, I watched the daughters. Oh, it was hilarious. There were some, some scenes in there that just were priceless to watch my daughter's reactions. I would give uh, money to have them videoed. When I think about Jaws, though, uh, it's a great picture of life because for most of us, our monster isn't a 25-foot great white. It's an 85, 95-year life. And our problems, our monsters, are more of the daily things like dishes and diapers and mowing and mood swings and finances and friends and sickness and sadness and, of course, the ever-incessant, never-ending to-do list that we have that just as soon as you check something off, something else gets added to the, to the queue, and it just keeps going. 
Some of these things nibble at you and others take off a leg. And with problems like this, that we can easily look at life and think, what's the point? This was Solomon's problem in Ecclesiastes, as he looked at life under the sun and asked, what's the purpose of it? Well, Ecclesiastes, look at chapter 2. The whole first chapter is wonderful as he sort of sets up the cyclical uh, frustration of just nature. He uses nature as an example as well as our, our lives. But then in chapter 2, he says something that's sort of a nice summary in verse 17. Look down at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. He says, So I hated life. For the work which has been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Great pictures here. Life under the sun. He uses that phrase over and over. And as you just take a broad sweep of Ecclesiastes, you realize that what he means by under the sun is life on earth. Life just apart from God being involved. If you leave God out of the picture and we just call life under the sun as it is, it's futile. It's meaningless. In fact, it's so bad, he says, I hated life because the work that's been done is grievous. If you look in the margin there for the word grievous, it's evil. It's evil to me. Why is it evil, Solomon? He says, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. It's pointless. You know, we, were, we just got back from Greece, and the, there are idols galore in Greece. I don't know if you have ever been to Greece. Certainly we're aware of the Greek gods. But when we go through museums in Greece and you walk through Athens and Rome, uh, Italy, there's just statues of idols everywhere, even still. Not that they're necessarily today worshipped, but it's such a pride of the history of that era that we see them everywhere and we sort of realize what Paul was up against when he went to these places, that people were so distracted by idols. And we can easily look at that and just sort of shove that in a museum, but until we realize, wait a minute, our culture is still that way. We just call our idols by different names. Ecclesiastes talks about the futility of a life that leaves God out. Because as Paul stood there in Athens on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he talked to people about an unknown God and he let them know about the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he basically told them that you can't fill a heart that is eternal with that which amounts to nothing. And then he introduces them to the Lord. Solomon came to that same conclusion. Solomon had it all. I mean, he had done it all, he had said it all, he had it all. Anything Solomon wanted, all he had to do was snap his fingers and 15 servants would show up with 17 different flavors of vanilla. Solomon had anything he wanted. There was no war to get in his way. God had given him peace. The borders of Israel expanded to their greatest extent. And Solomon was rich, so rich that silver was considered like rocks in Jerusalem. Solomon had it all. And as we walk 
if we were to walk through Ecclesiastes, you'd see his testimony of basically him saying, I tried to find meaning in life by, by finding meaning in what life offers, and I just kept hitting my head against the wall. It was futile. There was no point to it. Everything that the world offers and the world chases was just frustrating. And so in 2.17, here, he basically sums up where he comes so far and says, it's pointless. It's meaningless. That's the summary of, of the whole book. But now turn to chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5. It's really hard to turn past chapter 3, isn't it? You want to start singing the bird song there. But in chapter 5, Solomon goes beyond talking to people um, who don't know God but, and talks to those of us who do. And he says, you know, life can be just as meaningless for us who know the Lord if we don't keep a certain thing in perspective. Solomon also wrote Psalm 127, if you ever... Um, want to read that. Uh, you've read it, but it's that one that says, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor in vain. In vain. There's that vanity again. He, he's, that's a theme in Solomon's writing, that apart from God, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchers watch in vain. It is vain for you to rise up. I mean, it's the theme of that psalm. And it's the same theme in Ecclesiastes for those of us who are religious, who have faith. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5, and let's see the stage that Solomon is setting here. He writes, Guard your steps as you go into the house of God, and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So in answering the question, how do you hear a sermon? These verses are going to give us a great few principles that we can bring with us literally for the rest of our lives as we know that we're going to be hearing a sermon. In fact, there are three questions that you can jot down, and if you just basically tuck it somewhere in your Bible, you can ask it every time you hear a sermon. The sermon ought to answer these questions, and if the sermon doesn't, quit listening to the preacher and just look at the text, because the text will answer that question. Which is a great thing, by the way. If you're ever stuck in a place and you can tell that the, the pastor really isn't doing well <laughs> with, with the text, quit listening to him. Just read the text. The text has got plenty. That's probably not great advice, is it? But <laughs> that's what Kathy and I do. It's just like, eh, well, let's just read the book. The book's good. Solomon writes, draw near to listen. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. In other words, watch how you come when you come to the house of God. You know, we, we dress pretty well to come to church, but honestly, we, we come very casually. And a lot of times it's easy to come with a casual attitude as well, to kind of bring a ho-hum heart to our approach to the Word of God and in submitting ourselves to what the preacher is going to tell us. But Solomon warns us against that. He says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. To have your heart open before the Lord and say, God, I am here 
for you to talk to me. My ears are wide open. Tell me what you want me to hear. Give me something specific that otherwise I would not have if I did not have a heart that was open to listen. So the first of three questions is this. What is my motive as I listen to God's word? What is my motive as I listen to God's word? Keep your place here in Ecclesiastes and turn back, turn to the left, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. We'll come right back to Ecclesiastes, but look at something that the Lord said through Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. The Hebrew text has a couple of different words here, actually one word that's translated a couple of different ways. When it says here that uh, the Lord has delight, ha, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying, the word there literally is hearing, as in hearing the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Behold, to hear is better than sacrifice. Literally, that's what the text says. But because we understand that hearing leads to obedience, the translators just translated it obey. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So we, we could understand it to mean as in hearing in order to obey. Because what's the point of hearing if we don't obey? That's the whole point of what Samuel is saying. The Lord doesn't have delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices by themselves. He has much more delight in a heart that hears him and a heart that wants to obey him. I grew up in San Antonio and been to the Alamo probably as many times as I've seen Jaws, a lot. And when you think of the Alamo, what's the, the rallying cry of San Jacinto? What was it? Remember the Alamo. Absolutely. Remember the Alamo. And what did, what did they mean when they said remember the Alamo? They, they didn't mean, you know, just, let's just reflect back and... Think about the Alamo. Man, wasn't that, wasn't that just great heroism? Yeah. Huh. Oh, well. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, let's remember in order to act. In fact, it was the rallying cry of remember the Alamo that gave them the passion, that gave them the victory at San Jacinto. Remembering caused action. Hearing causes action. James writes, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. When Simeon told Mary about these things that a sword will pierce her own soul as well, can you imagine having a prophet of God tell you that? It says that Mary treasured these things up in her heart. She didn't deflect it, she took it. She assimilated it into who she was. Paul told Timothy, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. 
A.W. Tozier wrote, listen to these words, so good. He said, there's scarcely anything so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. Truth divorced from life is not truth in its biblical sense, but something else and something less. No man is better for knowing that God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. The devil knows that. And so did Ahab and Judas Iscariot. No man is better for knowing that God so loved the world of men that he gave his only begotten son to die for their redemption. In hell, there are millions who know that. Theological truth is useless unless it is obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. This is what Solomon is telling us. Turn back to Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon's point is in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Draw near to listen. And it's a listening that turns into action. Answering the question, what is my motive as I listen to God's word? Every single Sunday morning, we need to ask those questions. What is my attitude? Am I here in humility to be changed, or am I here simply doing my religious duty? One is a great benefit of time. One is a huge waste of time. It is vanity, Solomon says, a chasing after the wind. So what's my motive? So Solomon's going to apply this in a couple of different areas. The first area is in prayer. Look at verse 2. He writes, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. Blaise Pascal wrote, Do you wish people to believe good of you? Don't speak. <laughs> I love that. Silence, somebody once said, is evidence of a good command of the English language. <laughs> so true. Solomon is saying, when prayers are empty, People use meaningless repetition, so let your words be few. In other words, make them count. Don't pray just going through it by rote. Now I lay me down and sleep. Pray, Lord, still only keep it watching. Amen. Let's eat. No, let's sleep. So you can't even remember why you're praying. For the prayer, what was it for the prayer? Uh, yeah, it is. God is good. God is great. God is good. Let us thank you for our food. Amen. Wonderful. My, my grandfather used to pray the same thing over and over in Spanish. Gracias a Dios para elementos. Amen. That's it. I don't know what that means, but I'm telling you, I can say it just like I heard it yesterday. <laughs> Every single time, that's what he'd pray. I used to do the same thing. Sitting at dinner one time, my daughter Kate, after I said amen, she says, you know, you pray the same thing every time. So next time I prayed from the heart, she said, hey, you changed it. That's great. Meaningless repetition. Let your words be few, Solomon says. In other words, make them count. Otherwise, as he says in verse 3, there is a voice of a fool through many words. 
Prayers can't be empty. Literally, the original text says, don't be hasty with your mouth and impulsive with your heart so as to cause a word to go out before God. Why? Well, Solomon tells us, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. In other words, God is holy and we are not. So here's the second question. Question one was, what's my motive as I listen to God's word? Question two is this. What have I heard about God's character and my character? Solomon says, God is in heaven and you are not. So we've got two different people here. God is holy. What have I heard about God's character? When, when you come into the house of God, ask the question, when, you, when, you're, when you're listening to a sermon, ask the question, what am I learning about God's character? And secondly, about my character. And remember, hearing should lead to action. Otherwise, Solomon says, it's the sacrifice of fools. What have I heard about God's character that makes me want to worship God, that makes him awesome? Think about that in the sermon that we just heard. What is it about God's character in that in Acts chapter 12? He can open prison doors. He can make chains fall off. He can bring angels that cause things to happen in our lives that we would never see. He is a God of miracles and a God of power. We can praise him for that. What have I heard about God's character? And then secondly, what about my character? I love this cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes, a couple of the great theologians of yesteryear. <laughs> Calvin is walking out in the snow with Hobbes, and he says, I asked Dad if he wanted to see some New Year's resolutions I wrote. He said he'd be glad to, and he was pleased to see I was taking an interest in self-improvement. I told him the resolutions weren't for me, they were for him. <laughs> Next scene, Calvin says, that's why we're outside now. <laughs> Hobbes says, I wondered what the rush was. You see, this is not the right way to apply a sermon. How many times do you hear a message and you think, oh, yeah, my sister really needs to hear that? <laughs> and we go and we buy the CD and we fling it at her like a Chinese star. It just sort of sticks. Or it's like tossing somebody a, a live grenade. Here, listen to this message. <laughs> this is not the goal. Yes. Your spouse needs to hear this. Absolutely, your friend needs to hear this. But that's because we all need to hear it, including you and me. What have I heard about God's character and my characters? Because God's in heaven and we're on earth. Implication, we're not holy like he is. We've got a ways to go. What is this text teaching me about me that I need to, to be aware of? God has something to say to us every single time his word is spoken, every single time his word is spread, is read. Yeah, but I've heard this passage before, every single time. Yeah, but I've got this passage memorized. Let me quote it for you. Every single time the passage has something to say to us about God's character and our character. 
This week I got a wonderful letter in the mail from the federal government reminding me or inviting me to participate in a jury summons. Wasn't that nice? And it's one of those, it's not just in like in my local county of Denton where I just drive to Denton. This one like takes me to Sherman. So it was like an hour drive up there and I emailed him and I said, you realize you're asking me to drive an hour to Sherman? Well, surely this is a mistake. They were very prompt in getting back with me and saying, you know what, yeah, that's exactly what we want you to do. Now, how do you think they'd feel if I just kind of took this letter that they gave me and I thought, you know what, Uh, I'm not going to do anything with that. (laughs) Well, they probably wouldn't be too tickled at my ignoring that requirement. And that's just the federal government. What about the Word of God? When we come to the Word of God and we ask questions, what have I heard about God's character and my character? We can't just toss it to the wind. There's got to be action that follows from that. If we come to God and listen and do nothing, we're not listening biblically. Remember, we come to the Word of God with ears to hear and hearts to be changed. First example he gave was on prayer. The second example he gives now is about promises. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, we tend to apply this to marriage today because it's about the only context that we can think of in which we make vows. And it does apply to marriage, no doubt. It's an easy way to, it's an easy place to apply it. I remember Kathy and I went to a wedding some years ago, and the groom was repeating his vows very flippantly. Do you so-and-so, you know, take so-and-so to be... To have and to hold. Yeah, to have and to hold. For rich or poor. For rich or poor. And sickness and in health. Yeah, to death did we part. I mean, it's just like, wow. And, and next to me, I heard my wife go, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I mean, imagine a deathly silent congregation, and from the back, this one voice goes, mm, mm, mm. Well, my wife is a prophetess because, indeed, that marriage did not work out. The the vows were taken flippantly, unlike what is written here. And what's written here is easy to apply to marriage vows because that's really the only vows we can think of today. But back in Solomon's day, in in the day of the Old Testament, it was different. There were vows. In the Old Testament, a believer would vow something to God. We see that Paul, on his, one of his journeys back to Jerusalem, cut his hair at Sincrea because he had made a vow. And that particular vow was a Nazarite vow, and we aren't told exactly the specifics of, of what he was vowing to the Lord. 
except that for a particular time, he was not going to cut his hair, he was not going to drink wine, he was not going to touch a dead body. He was dedicating himself to his work there in Corinth. We don't know exactly what his vow was. But the point was, in the Old Testament, there were vows, basically promises, and a promise specifically made to God. When you vow a vow, the New International Version says, do not delay in fulfilling it. The vows in Solomon's day were being dealt with in a frivolous manner, a frivolous spirit. They were rashly made and they were rashly broken. And Solomon says, don't do that. Why should you lose God's blessing on what you're doing? You fulfill your vow and you've got the blessing of God. You don't fulfill your vow and you won't. Why should God, how does he say, destroy the work of your hands on account of your voice? Well, Solomon sums it up in verse 7. He says, For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. See how it all connects here, how the whole passage connects. In verse 1, he says he refers to the sacrifice of fools. In verse 3, at the end, he says the voice of a fool through many words. Verse 4, he takes no delight in fools. Then in verse 7, in many dreams and in many words. So all of the context together is just talking about many words that mean nothing. In fact, he even uses the word their emptiness, which is his theme of vanity. <coughs> Leonard Wolf, the author and publisher, wrote this. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past, past five years to seven years would be exactly the same if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I have a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. What a testimony. What an honest admission. And whether you're an author or a publisher or whether you're a plumber, both are true. If life lived under the sun has not got God involved. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's a waste of life. Solomon says that in many words, in other words, he means in the words that are spoken. We read through the, the whole passage here, just sort of boom, 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 summarizing what he means by the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is many words. And the many words, as, he's, as we've seen, are words thoughtlessly repeated in prayer, where they should be fewer and more meaningful. They're words that are said in a vow, but words that aren't done. It's absolute vanity. This is what Solomon calls the sacrifice of fools. What is the better way then? He says in three words, rather fear God. Rather fear God or revere him. This is the point. In fact, this is the conclusion of his whole book. Turn with me to the very last chapter, in fact, the last couple of verses of this book, Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. 
He told us in chapter 5, rather fear God, and then he repeats his conclusion here at the conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Or as Solomon says here, fear God and obey his commandments. It's the same idea. Fear God and love people. It's the point of life. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, we've asked two questions so far. What's my motive as I listen to God's word? Second, what have I heard about God's character and my character? And then finally, what is my responsibility? What is my, what is my responsibility? What's my duty? I've come with the right motive and God has spoken to me. And what have I heard? about who God is and who I am. Now, after that, what do I do? What's my responsibility? Every single time we come to the text, these three questions can be asked and answered and then applied. That's, that's the good thing, is they can be applied. What is my responsibility? And this is a good question to ask, too, when you feel like life has been a huge disappointment or when you're tempted to sort of mope around and feel sorry for yourself, we need to ask the stinging question, what is my responsibility? Because the Bible never really talks about, um, about us in terms of our rights. It talks a lot to us about our responsibilities. To love other people doesn't mean we have a right to be loved by other people. It means we have a responsibility to love other people. The Bible talks very rarely about our rights. Mostly it talks about our responsibilities. We like to flip it. We like to find ways that we can demand what is owed us as opposed to what we owe. What is my duty? What is my responsibility? This is what the text of Ecclesiastes challenges us to do. Fear God and obey his commandments. Because a life lived in desperate pursuit of meeting your own needs. This is what Solomon tried. He tried for a long time. In fact, he loved his wives so much that he tried to please them. And, of course, they were idolatrous. And he ended up abandoning the Lord. If God was not first in Solomon's life, then you're going to put somebody else in place of God. And hopefully they're, they're good people. But if they're not... Even the best people are flawed. And if we make anyone else other than the Lord our Lord, then our lives can begin to get off kilter. <coughs> Solomon had it all, wine, women, and song, as much as he wanted. He chased every wind that blew in order to find purpose. Solomon's goal in the first part of his life was Solomon. And he came away absolutely convinced that Life was absolutely meaningless. 
Jeff Gorsuch says this, The question to ask at the end of life's race is not so much what have I accomplished, but whom have I loved and how courageously. How should we listen to a sermon? Well, you ask and act on three simple questions. What's my motive as I listen to God's word? Second, what have I heard about God's character and my character? And finally, what's my responsibility? What's my duty? Solomon wrote, Guard your steps as you go into the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know that they're doing evil. You know, another reason I enjoyed watching Jaws so many times is because I know how it ends. Every single time when I'd start, you'd still feel the tension of the scene, even though you know that Brody throws the scuba tank into his mouth and says some bad words right before he shoots him. Every single time you know that's going to happen. And the shark dies at the end. The good guy wins. We know this is how it's going to end. The same is true with our lives. Sometimes amidst the, the fray and the foam that's going on all around us, we need to remember the end of the story. And the end of the story is a good one. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have the great promise that one day, maybe today, he will come again and that he will take us to be with him, that where he is, we will be also forever and ever. That's our hope. That's our blessed hope. It's called in the book of Titus, our blessed hope, the rapture. In any moment, it could happen. So let's don't forget the end of the story. Jesus is coming again. And until then, Solomon says, this life that we have under the sun, don't chase it like the world chases it. That's vanity. That's meaningless. You will never have anything of satisfaction if you do that. And neither will I. Instead, fear God. Keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful as we read this text that it leaves no, no one untouched. We all read this and we realize that every person applies to every person and every person includes us. We all have this responsibility to fear God and keep his commandments. It applies to everyone. So, Father, as we come to the text every day alone and then also on Sundays as we hear sermon after sermon after sermon, help us to approach it in a brand new way with a heart that's humble, first of all, asking, what's my motive as I listen? With eager expectation to be taught about your character and about our character. And then, Father, give us the courage to ask and then to do what is our responsibility. We pray you'd be glorified with this. And we pray that you send your son soon. In his name we pray. Amen.